You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 20 Black Two Sugars Coffee, Tea, and Tech. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Jive, and it loves me. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Comfortable? I'm very comfortable. You're very comfortable. I have my tea by my side. I'm very comfortable. And there's a glass of water there, too, if you want it. There is indeed. Water being the most drunk beverage on the planet. I'm glad it's here, too, as a representative of the beverage world. So, Harry, here we are. You're having a cup of tea. I'm having a cup of delicious Hockley Valley coffee. I'm having a green tea latte, to be truthful, but it's still tea. And we've got a glass of water. Yes, we do. So the order is most consumed water. Number two is? Tea, of course. Tea. Maybe to some people's surprise. Maybe not. People who don't live in China might be surprised. Right, right. <laughs> By far the largest consumer of tea in the world, right? Exactly. Okay. Something like 99 point something percent in China. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got a country like Guatemala that is 99.6% coffee, 0.4% tea consumption. Right. All of which is to do with history and what the country produces in the way of agriculture, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But apart uh, from that, it's interesting to me when you look at the world map of the consumption of both tea and coffee, you can almost draw a line down the center with a few exceptions. The industrialized West and the East. Well, tea is almost 5,000 years old as a substance and it came out of the East. So naturally it has a bigger history there and is ingrained in people's psyches. Tea was only introduced to the West in the 17th century. About the same time as coffee. Yeah. Prior to that... Europeans were drinking beer, mead, alcoholic beverages. Mead being honey? Yeah, honey, fermented honey-based uh, liquor. Mm. And uh, they found that by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, workers were pretty well useless. High-eyed, so to speak. Yeah. And so when they introduced tea and coffee, suddenly they'd have a tea break or a coffee break, and they'd have energy again because there's caffeine. In and, you know, world. you just mentioned the word break. Do you know that the word coffee break only came out in 1952? Really? The actual phrase, coffee break. How did that happen? It was in the U.S. I don't remember the circumstances. In some kind of an office situation where people were hmm. breaking, per se, and uh, the term coffee break was used, as, as far as they know, uh-huh. which is basically around the time we were born. Well, other trivia, uh, the tea bag was introduced in 1904-ish only hmm. in the U.S. by Thomas Sullivan. The whole concept of iced tea didn't happen until the 20th century. Mm-hmm. The St. Louis World's Fair, a fellow okay, by yeah. the name of Bletchenden. It was so hot that people were just roasting that summer. And he got the idea of putting ice in the tea. Oh. And it became iced tea. And that's the kind of tea that Americans particularly understand as that's tea. That's true. If you say tea to Americans, they're thinking iced tea. And when speaking about Americans, what really gave tea a boost in the U.S. was the Boston Tea Party. Of course, yeah, the famous moment of rebellion. Converted a lot of people all over to tea. Absolutely. The, the British were going to impose taxes unfairly, and they said, screw that, we're throwing the tea overboard. And uh, yeah, so at the basis of America itself is this act in regards to tea. 
So the drink in itself, apart from its popularity, you kind of wonder how many things have been discovered or pondered over a cup of coffee or tea. Oh, sure. I'm sure all those great poets, Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth, those Brits, were probably imbibing tea when they're inscribing their epic poems. So, mm-hmm. yes, it's, and same with coffee, right? Coffee has been there for a long time, and writers often rely on coffee to stay awake through the night as they scribble their masterpieces and that sort of thing. Artists probably, too, drink a lot of coffee, I would think. And in modern times, things have really changed. I mean, do you remember even ourselves growing up, and you basically went to a restaurant or you went to a cafe, as few as there were at the time. You basically ordered coffee black uh, with sugar or with cream and uh, maybe a cappuccino. That was about the extent of it. Cappuccinos really weren't around in North America True. until, what, 30 years ago or yeah, something? Yeah, being Italian, I was probably exposed <laughs> to that more so than people around me. But my point was that there were very limited choices in terms of how you drank both these yeah. drinks, actually. Even tea it was usually chamomile or green or... Not even that. You'd had Lipton's black tea. That's what you had. In the 50s, when I grew up, you didn't have herbal teas around and green teas around. Mm -hmm. You had Lipton's tea, and that was basically it for tea. True. And then, you know, really a revolution happened over the next 50 years in tea production, in marketing tea as a health kind of product, because tea in its original form... Mm-hmm. Green tea, which was green tea, was considered a medicinal beverage. It was yes. medicine. It wasn't just a drink to drink for taste. You drank it for ailments. Yeah, to feel better mm-hmm. and to improve your immune system. And tea has a lot of these properties. Yes, uh, antioxidants. Antioxidants, which help the immune system. It's been shown to help in certain kinds of cancers right. to mitigate against them, yes. to reduce them. Coffee's a little more controversial in terms Mm. of arguments for and against. Right. But it's a known antioxidant. But like most things, it's about the amount that you use. A lot of studies have shown that moderate consumption can be very healthy. But the coffee also, the quality of the coffee is important, of course. Well, what's healthy in what way? Among other things, they found that it was an immune system builder. Mm -hmm. But again, I stress the moderate use because caffeine can have pros and cons to it. And some people actually cannot consume caffeine. But in moderate use, there are purportedly a lot of benefits. In fact, they've even associated longevity. Moderate use of coffee seems to prolong life. That's really interesting. Now, some of that obviously stems from the strengthening of the immune system. Right. If you go back to the 1400s, 1500s, where apparently the origins of coffee seem to stem around the Middle East, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, in those regions, the main function that it served was to help keep people awake. Right. It constricts the blood vessels in the brain, which actually helps a person focus better, which is interesting. Given that it speeds you up at the same time, right. it also helps you focus at the same time. And a lot of people have come over to tea <clears throat> from coffee... Partly because uh, the caffeine levels are less in tea, so it doesn't speed you up as much. It doesn't stress your blood pressure if you have issues like that. And it's a way of gently waking up in the morning and getting into the day rather than getting jolted with caffeine. You know, that's interesting because I'm one of the opposites. I I went more from tea to coffee. (laughs) Yeah, over to the dark side. (laughs) No, but it's true. And I think uh, 
Part of it was my involvement uh, with it in the cafe when I started to do classes and help people out with their equipment as part of the cafe setting. Which cafe, sorry? The French Press oh, okay. in Orangeville. Mm-hmm. And uh, through that, I also met the owners at the time who had developed their own coffee blend, which is Hockley Valley Coffee. The reason why they bought the cafe to begin with as a storefront to their coffee. And uh, from there, I learned a lot about coffee and about coffee roasting. Mm-hmm. I got to learn a lot of the finer points. Now, I had had some experience when I was in university because I worked a summer with a coffee roaster during my university years to earn some income. So I had had some exposure, which gave me a different appreciation for it. So then what makes for a good cup of coffee? Primarily how you roast and make it. First of all, you start off with a good quality bean, which is typically... There are two basic coffee beans. There's Arabica and Robusta. Arabica is what you want. That's the high quality mm-hmm. coffee. Lesser quality coffees are made from Robusta. Mm-hmm. Also, how you make it, water that you use, oh, the, the so temperature what, that you brew it at. You what, never want to boil water when you're making coffee. It really? always has to be a few degrees below boiling. Really? Mm-hmm. I see that. I hadn't heard before. Why mm-hmm. is that? You overheat the water, it ruins the actual uh, brewing process. Interesting. Uh, so it makes the coffee more bitter. See, that's true for tea as well, especially green right. tea and oolong tea. Black tea is fine. Right. Yeah, very interesting. So, okay, water, temperature, quality of the water. How you store your coffee, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the grind that you use. There are different grinds for different brewing types. For example, if you're using French press, you want it coarser than you would if you were making espresso. Yeah, right which affects the saturation of the actual ground coffee bean. Uh, mm-hmm. The actual dimension of the granule affects water penetration and absorption and so on. Right, right. right. What about storing coffee? People sometimes store their coffee in the freezer. That's a no-no. Really? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You oh. want to keep it at room temperature. <laughs> I better get home want, right now. <laughs> more importantly, you want to keep it sealed. Yeah. And typically the pantry is a perfect place for it, but you never want to refrigerate or freeze coffee. Does it actually deteriorate the coffee in some way? Yes. More importantly for the average consumer, it affects the taste because a lot of people don't really concern themselves too much with the quality of what they focus on is whether they like how it tastes or not. Right. Uh, Right. But all those factors. So a lot of times people have great coffee in their hands and they think that it's not good coffee because they're not brewing it properly. Right, right. Or they're putting so much cream in it that they're really never sampling the actual coffee itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The bane to a good coffee drinker are these little capsules, mm-hmm. plastic mm-hmm. capsule coffees, which are, first of all, they're prohibitively expensive. They pollute because all these plastic containers have to yeah. be disposed of. Yeah. In fact, the fellow who invented it said it's one of his greatest regrets because yeah. once these companies got hold of the coffee and went with these wide distribution plans and, you know, of course, always in the name of profit, profitability and convenience. Right. So a lot of people are sacrificing good quality coffee in the name of convenience. There's a movement afoot to ban these things as well, mm. to have people not go after them and mm. purchase them right. because of the pollution aspect especially. That's where the other thing where technology comes in. With modern technology, not only did it facilitate that process, mm-hmm. but on the opposite end of that spectrum, the younger people are a little bit more conscious of the environment than our own generation was. And food companies have become aware of that fact So they realize that they're losing sales if they're not paying attention to things like free trade and Mm -hmm. packaging. People have moved away from teabag tea, which if you open a bag of teabag tea and you Mm -hmm. look inside, you'll find a lot of very, very fine granules. 
They're called fannings. And they're basically one level above the dust on the floor of the tea production Ah, plant. Okay. Because when they produce tea, they put them in filter systems that shake the leaves so that the larger leaves stay above. Then there's a filter that drops the smaller pieces of leaf and then another filter right down to the bottom, little granules called fannings. They go into the tea bags. They're the cheapest, least quality form of tea. And oh. then they sell them. So people are realizing that and going, well, I can buy loose leaf tea in bags, less packaging, Mm-hmm. And I can get filters or a metal strainer and make my own, my own tea, tea yeah, right. and it's better quality, and it's more like the original product and what it really should taste like mm-hmm. as well. And then there's all the other misconceptions, too, and I don't know if this applies to tea, but for example, that if a coffee is IE stronger, meaning tasting stronger, depending on your palate, yeah. that there's more caffeine, mm-hmm. you know, that it's more potent. And actually, the opposite is true. Generally, the higher the quality, the darker the roast, the less caffeine there is. Okay, so correct people's assumptions, because there's probably an assumption out there, and I've had it too, that an espresso would have more caffeine than a regular cup. Is that true or not? Typically, what's more important, it's the actual coffee bean that's being used to make the espresso. So if you're using a Robusta bean, which a lot of places do, you're going to get higher levels of caffeine. Uh, So in that particular situation, you'd want to ask the barista what coffee bean is being used. Mm -hmm, In mm -hmm. terms of the methodology, because it's such a fine grind, you will also increase the amount of caffeine, the amount of draw out of that particular bean. That's why French press is typically lower in caffeine, because you're using a coarser ground. So there's a technology to it, and there's an art to it. You know more about tea. I know a little bit more about coffee. Neither one of us profess to be experts, but... Oh, I do. I profess to be an expert. You do? (laughs) Okay. Well, I certainly don't. uh, (laughs) Everything I say is gospel truth. But, you know, talking about the art, uh, if you think about the Japanese tea ceremony, for example, on the surface of it, it looks like people sitting in this little room, very spare, maybe a flower arrangement on one side, maybe a scroll with some Japanese characters on the mm-hmm. other, and nothing else. And then in the middle, the tea master is sitting there with these implements, with a brazier for heating the water, etc. And the tea master is doing this thing where every single movement from pouring the water to lifting the ladle to handing over the bowl is prescribed in a certain particular way. Ah. to do it properly. So the tea ceremony became, in Japan... It's a ritual. An, an, a ritual, but also an act of aesthetics, an artistic act. And it was done to create this feeling of calmness, allowing you also, if you're in the room, to appreciate the art that is the flower arrangement or the, the painting on the wall. They've created this entire environment to almost accentuate or highlight these things. Yeah, it's an intense experience if you've gone through it. Yeah. And it used to be something that began in the courts, of course, and then filtered down to day-to-day life. Uh, very interesting, too, that when you go into a tea room in that way, the door is very low, forcing you to bend over ah. to go in, which means... Everybody is the same when you enter that space. King or pauper, you still have to bend Ah, and be humble to go into the space. Symbolic as well. It's symbolic of that. So it's fascinating. And you know, it's interesting too, Harry, that you talk about that at that level. However, even ourselves in Western culture, I mean, think of you and I or people we know every day uh, in a cafe 
scenario. I mean, there is a certain mindset when I enter. There is a calming and social aspect to it that I really uh, appreciate. I look at a cup of coffee sometimes or a cup of tea as just something to settle me down and to reflect or to think if I'm going to write something or I'm going to say something. I just find it puts me in a whole other mental state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I'm with other people who are doing the same thing, there's a highly social aspect to it, which I find is extremely positive. It's also, you know, a way for communities to identify themselves. Look at Britain and England and the way they approach tea. There's low tea, there's high tea, and it's a way of saying, I am British, I drink tea, you see. There's something about it that it helps to identify them as who they are. And the other fun thing about Britain and the way they approach tea is it's a medicinal thing, but psychologically as well. I mean, your wife could leave you... The world could be falling into Armageddon, mm-hmm. and they'd come up to you and say, what you need is a nice cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the thing about that that also interests me, because you, you talked about the association to a specific group or mm-hmm. nationality. or yeah. But what's interesting to me is, too, the effect, the marketing and the association that we have in our minds with various things. For example, whenever you say the word espresso you immediately associate it with Italian or cappuccino, right? Mm -hmm. right? So you think of, oh boy, these Italians, you know, they're drinking coffee all the time, and yet they're not even on the top 10 of coffee consumers in the world. Interesting. You said that something like 20% of Italians drink tea. Shocking. Uh, Among Europeans, they are one of the heaviest uh, tea consumers, but I know where that comes from. Where? Because growing up, As a little boy, I remember that every time we, you know, if you had an upset stomach or a headache or a little cold, they went right to chamomile tea. Mm -hmm. Chamomile Mm -hmm. tea is probably one of the most widely consumed teas in Italy. And it was done primarily for medicinal or quasi-medicinal purposes, a calmer. And it does actually work. If you have trouble sleeping, a cup of chamomile just seems to settle you. So tea consumption, specifically in Italy... Yeah. was lifted more from that perspective than an actual mm-hmm. social or otherwise. I think coffee is still the widely preferred drink, but when you're not feeling well, you're a little bit off, you switch over to chamomile tea. Well, look at herbal teas have been around probably longer than non-herbal teas. Mm-hmm. People should realize, too, that the word tea really is to do with black tea or green tea, the Camellia sinensis leaf, which okay. is used to make black tea or green tea. Herbal teas are a different plant altogether. They're okay. not Camellia sinensis. They're peppermint. They're chamomile. Right. They're mullein. They're different types of herbs. And that has been around. Herbal healing has been around long before the Camellia sinensis leaf became produced as a tea. Mm -hmm. So those are tisans. And just so people know, you ran a cafe for a while, right? A tea shop. Yeah, it was a tea shop. For uh, how long? For six years up in Collingwood. And I got to also meet tea drinkers and to understand a bit about their psychology as well. Because the average tea drinker, from my experience there, is just a little bit more introverted almost. They're a bit more inward you differentiated the mm-hmm. kind of uh, personality profile of tea drinkers versus coffee drinkers. Yeah. I mean, in a very broad sense. Very right? bro- yeah, very broad sense. But yeah, they always seem to me the tea drinkers a bit more quieter in their ways. They're not as loud, not as quick to opinion about things, present their opinions. It seemed to be they were a little bit more calm or well, something. Well, the very look, if you put a cup of coffee beside a cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, uh, it it actually physically looks more imposing. (laughs) Even the color. I'm tea, black, 
Yeah, but even the color. There's a sense of uh, strength, not necessarily a positive thing, but I'm just saying in terms of what we associate with. You're a coffee drinker or a tea drinker. There's a certain association. Well, a lot of countries where you associate hot-blooded populations, Italy, you know, Brazil. Greece. Yeah, drink coffee. Right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's this passionate kind of drink. Yeah, where the more reflective thinking people like China and the East... It's, yeah, it's where you have tea. Buddhism and Zen, right? right? Which uh, where you need to calm and center and center. There you have tea proliferating. So it's a very interesting phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, in that way. Uh, but you're talking about how technology and coffee work together. Just the simple purchase of tea and coffee now. Yeah. Um, the companies are aware of specifically mobile apps where they can customize apps for their particular products and services. So someone like Starbucks, for example, simplifies the task of purchasing because this is what people are drawn to now, the expediency, the ease. So they they click on their app, it tells which coffee they want, it automatically pay for it, on and on it goes. It's just this technology which is now kind of directing people who are producing these goods and services in a specific direction. Yeah. So it's yeah. not just about the product itself anymore. It's about accommodating the consumer in terms of how they purchase it, how they consume it, what the associations are with this product, you mm-hmm. know, even in mm-hmm. terms of popularity or status symbol. Right. If you go into a coffee shop, it's like an ice cream. When I get an ice cream, I want a real ice cream. I, I want chocolate, vanilla. I don't want marshmallows. I don't want blue ice <laughs> you cream. You don't like Rocky Raccoon? Right? So you go into these coffee shops, it's the same thing. What do you want? You know, there's 18 ingredients in this particular latte, and it costs $18. You know, just Yeah, but me. hey, but listen, that's worked, hasn't it? That Absolutely formula worked. has worked. Absolutely. Because why has it worked? Because people get tired of the same old, same old. They want adventure. They want to try something different. Sure. And when you see a cinnamon dolce latte, grande size, soy latte with soy milk, no whip, please. Yeah. yeah, That's an adventure in itself. So I must be an oddball because I seem immune (laughs) to that kind of stuff. It has the exact opposite effect on me. And there are people who would never put tea in the cup before milk goes into it. That destroys it for them. It has to be milk in the cup. Yeah. And then tea on top. <laughs> so basically, coffee and tea are symptomatic of all our idiosyncrasies. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they reflect our... Sure. Right? Yeah, and, we, and they're rituals for us. I mean, my cup of tea in the morning is a ritual. Right. I, I don't have a cup. I used to have coffee many years ago, but now... It's only tea, and it's typically a black tea, an Assam tea from India, for mm-hmm. example. That's what I would have. So it kind of sets you up for the day, right? There's, there's a certain yeah. routine that you follow, and right. there's a whole physical manifestation of yourself in the process, isn't there? Coffee and tea and the java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at ConnectingDotsMedia.com.